This is Dan Wharton Uncancelled. Let's go. I knew it was a bad idea. Uh, I said so on the show last week. During a consequential Tory leadership election, that will determine our next Prime Minister. Why give the all-important debates that help shape public opinion to Channel 4 and ITV, two of the biased broadcasters who have been on an incessant campaign to bring down Boris Johnson? And sure enough, rather than focusing on the candidates' future plans for the country... The Boris Hunter-in-Chief at Channel 4 News, Krishnan Gurumurthy, wanted to focus on only one thing. When did you stand up for integrity and honesty? When did you tell Boris Johnson he was wrong and he had to go? Why did it take you so long to stand up? Even when you said you might like to be leader one day, you didn't call for him to go. Why should they trust you when you were the second most powerful person in the country? You didn't stand up to Boris Johnson until the very last minute. When did you ever stand up to him about the Covid parties or Chris Pincher being Deputy Chief Whip? Is Boris Johnson honest? Is Boris Johnson honest? So he is not honest. Is Boris Johnson an honest man? I mean, honestly, what were they thinking signing up to that? I've spent eight months talking about Partygate and Channel 4 News still isn't finished. Well, we are. It's over. You won. Now we need to know about tax cuts and net zero plans and the war on woke. Uh, and while I do think Julie Sheenham on ITV News last night actually did a very good job as moderator overall, far, far better than the deranged lefties at Channel 4, she still found time for this Boris gotcha moment. If he wished to serve, who here would be happy to have Boris Johnson in their cabinet? Please raise your hands. If he wished to serve, would you have Boris Johnson in your cabinet if you were PM? Not a single person would have Boris Johnson I, back I... I would like to say something about him, because I think it's only fair. Well, we are going to go back to that after the break, so (laughs) hold that thought, Penny Morden, hold all of your thoughts (laughs) on that issue, but very notable that not a single uh, person uh, raised their hands. So ITV got what they wanted, but as you could see there, when Penny Morden tried to push back and offer a defence of Boris Johnson's legacy, she was cut off. So, in that context, and while I'm usually all for media scrutiny of politicians, of course, I think it's right the frontrunners Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss today pulled out of the sly news leadership debate planned for tomorrow night. Its moderator, Kay Burley, who, along with Beth Rigby, is referred to as the broadcaster's COVID party gal, she's not known for her impartiality and would no doubt have made the viral blue-on-blue attacks all about her. It's Tory MPs who have to make the decision this week. And then the final two will be voted on by Conservative members alone. The candidates then should speak in forums, like here at GB News, where they do not have to deal with the craven anti-Boris, anti-Brexit agenda of the rest of the MSM. Given we are facing the coalition of hell, with Labour's Starmer linking up with Sturgeon's SNP, the Lib Dems and the Greens, it was unedifying, unedifying to say the least, to see some of the biggest figures in the Tory party basically 
rip each other to shreds, Hunger Games style last night. However, such a combative approach did lead to this breakthrough moment for Liz Truss, who had been struggling with her debate performances, uh, something she's admitted is not her strong point. But when Boris backstabber Fishy Rishi Sunak thought he had a real gotcha moment when he quizzed Liz about her political past, we actually got to see her tell her personal story. Watch. Uh, my question's for Liz, actually. Uh, Liz, in your, in your past, you've been both a Liberal Democrat and a Remainer. I was just wondering which one you regretted most. <laughs> I am somebody who was not born into the Conservative Party. I went to school in Paisley and Leeds. I went to a comprehensive school. My parents were left-wing activists and I've been on a political journey ever since. But my fundamental belief and the reason I am a Conservative is I saw kids at my school being let down in Leeds. I saw them not get the opportunities, not get the proper educational standards that you might have got at your school, Rishi. I saw them wasted, having wasted potential, and I thought that waste was wrong. That's why I'm a Conservative, because I believe that everybody needs to have that opportunity. I believe in high education. As Conservative academic Adrian Hilton tweeted of that exchange, a game-changing moment for Liz Truss, Rishi thought he'd set a clever trap, but instead presented her with an open goal. Watch the smile, the stiffness disappear, the fluency emerge, the passion grow. That's Liz for leader authenticity. She needs to find more of that. And now are the clear favourites, although Kemi Bader not, she's a real threat. But they are the clear favourites at this point, and Truss and Sunak this morning, as a result, called time on the TV debates. Whether it's morally right or not, the only people who matter the next 24 hours are the Tory MPs. And then the members get six weeks to choose our next Prime Minister. While it's by no means certain, it's increasingly more likely that choice will be between Sunak and Truss. But to respond now, my superstar panel, Daily Express columnist Carol Malone, star reporter at the I newspaper Benjamin Butterworth, and political journalist John Sargent. So, Carol, so much to break down tonight. What do you make of the votes? The, oh, the, yeah, the vote. I mean, I, I kind of knew it would get down to those four, but but I think it's what I think is really odd is the the reasons that um, that the Truss and Sunak have given for pulling out of the debates. They're saying it's because it was the concern about the damage it was doing to the party's reputation. They were told exactly what ousting Boris and having a leadership mm. base would do to the party's reputation. They were warned that this would bring out the smears and the dirty tricks and all that. That's exactly what's been happening. And so, so what was predicted is exactly what happened last night. And a lot of them... I mean, when Sunak just confronted Trust like that, he just looked bitchy, actually. He'd, and he looked silly. And that guy was quite saying that, you know, his smile receded. Yeah, he did, because she got him. But I, but I think them saying they're pulling out like in some noble way to save the party is nonsense. You know, what they're doing, I think it looks currently like the Tories have lost their collective minds. Uh, also, Carol, I just wanted to, to bring something to, to your attention, okay. uh, which is quite fascinating. So, so Sunak was there pulling Truss apart yeah, because yeah. she used to be a member of, yeah, yeah. of, of the Lib Dems literally decades yeah. ago. Well, guess what? The Sun's political editor, Harry Cole, has found something that a teenage... Rishi Sunak oh, no. uh, once <laughs> once wrote, uh, 
where he where he said uh, a lot of things, including urging his fellow pupils to ignore Tory party propaganda <laughs> over Gordon Brown's windfall taxes and uh, saying if voters want a welfare-to-work scheme that they think will really make a difference, then they should be prepared to pay for it. So... If we want to go back that far... But, you know, this, I think that's what's really unsavoury about all of this, that, that it, it, they are depending on smears and they are depending on, on hurting people in their party, but they always knew this was going to happen. And I think what the debate that I've seen has exposed so far is the one who's outshone them all is the outsiders, Kemi Babnog. People like her. She's saying the stuff that people want to hear, but she's never going to get it, obviously, because she's too inexperienced. But, you know, I just think the rest have been made to look... Well, John, silly and self John, do you think she's never going to get it? Because there's a lot of talk in Westminster this evening that I'm hearing already that the fact that she added more MPs than Trust tonight, even though Trust secured that very important backing from Braverman, who dropped out in the last round, could mean that Kemi isn't out of this race yet. Yeah, I mean, the trouble about that is you can imagine Rishi versus Kemi. Put to the put to the vote. Emmy would thrash Rishi. All right, but it's he still that him. is still a very difficult thing to imagine. These are two people from ethnic minorities. You can say, oh, we don't talk about that. We talk about the people. We talk about their abilities. But I think the Conservative membership might just find that too much to take. Well, I one don't of them, want to talk one about ethnic, their I know you don't want to talk about it, but I it's don't a want to talk about It's it. a factor. I think, he's, I think he's absolutely right. It's something that I'm hearing when I'm talking to people all the time. When I'm going into people's houses and people living, people's living room, they're saying... Britain's Are they inviting just, you in? Of course. Well, <laughs> crash on them. Um, no, they're just, they're just saying that's something that probably wouldn't happen in this country. The Tories aren't ready for that. And remember, it mm. is a Tory clique and elite that is going to pick mm. the, the, prime, the Prime Minister, which I think is also wrong, but anyway. But if you take her as a person, Dan, I mean, I don't want to give the impression that I'm in any way against Kemi. She, if I had a vote, I'd vote for her. I mean, I, I think she's impressive. She's yeah. 42. She's got everything going for her in terms of what the public like, the fact that she's clean slate, she's different, she talks about trust and seems to believe it. It's very impressive. And her actual pitch to the public beats all the others. There's no doubt about that. The thing is, I could understand what you were saying if it was backed up by data, but the latest Conservative Home survey suggests that Kemi would thrash every other contender in a runoff. And, of course, just, that is a survey of Conservative... Dan, I would just be worried about these opinion polls. Yeah. You've got well, to no, if you say to someone, exactly, yeah, uh, you know, are you racially prejudiced? They say, certainly not. Mm. And you then give a picture of someone from an ethnic minority and a white person, are they affected by it? I'm afraid they are. I don't mean all of them. I don't mean excessively so. But if we completely sort of... If we don't make any mention of it at all in the weeks that come, I think we're actually... We are, in our own ways, as journalists, selling the public short. But do you know what? I hate identity politics in all ways. So I actually... The reason I don't want to talk about it is I also can't stand everyone saying, oh, how brilliant is the Conservative Party because we're going to have a... Oh, sure. We're going to have an yeah. ethnic minority. For me... I just want the best person for the job. I'm completely colourblind when it comes to that. Don't give a damn about their sex. That's Don't great, give a damn yeah. about yeah, their sexuality. Dan, we're great. Yeah. Absolutely great. We're going to all agree on that. But this does not mean that everybody who will be voting 
takes the same view. That's no, what but, I'm saying. But I agree with that. But what I'm also saying, though, is there's been a lot of people who are trying to use the diversity in the race to try and praise the Conservative Party, too. I just think we shouldn't talk about identity politics, full stop. Benjamin, I believe you're actually with me, believe it or not. You think it was right for Truss and Sunak to pull out of this sly news debate. Why? I do. I mean, I think at this stage, we frankly know what they're going to say in these debates. I think the third one wasn't really that useful. But look, you know, the original idea was uh, let's do these debates so people can see the Tory MPs that might be prime minister. And now they're going, no, actually, let's not do the debates because they might see the Tory MPs that could be prime minister. Mm. I mean, last night was actually... That's Carol's point. It was actually quite dull, I have to say, because the answers... What do you think? I found oh, it last feisty. Was well, than the Channel 4 because the answers were so, so short, I didn't feel like I was learning anything meaningful about it. It needed to plans. be longer. Exactly. So, you know, there might have been moments of friction, but I wasn't... I didn't feel it was a constructive insight into them. But, frankly, I mean, the whole thing just feels like, you know, they finally brought Big Brother back. It's sort of a different oddball is evicted every couple of days, and they're all fighting to, to stay in the house. <laughs> you know, the big, mis the big mistake is to agree in the first place. If you're particularly concerned about trust, transparency... We're going to be honest, and you then abandon a debate, a public debate. Yeah. Just think of that in simple PR terms. It's a disaster. But they shouldn't have agreed. They should be much more circumspect. They should be much more skillful, actual I, I, skill, I, I, political I, skill. If I may, I think if there was going to be a third debate, it shouldn't have been uh, a cross-section of the public as the first two were. It should have been only Conservative Party mm. members. Totally. Because, because that, that Channel 4 audience makes Final also, word, Carol. But also, I think what that, that debate did show, it exposed some of the people that exposed Penny Morden, that's for sure. Mm. I mean, it, it, it put her forward as she was a lightweight. She, she well, she I has don't no, think that. Well, she has no economic policy. I mean, she has Kevin misrepresented... Not she, has, she has misrepresented herself. Well, it's fascinating, a, isn't it, Carol, because she remains second well, in terms of the number of votes from MPs. But none of us now are talking about her getting to the final two. It's she going to be Truss or yeah, Badenoch yeah. versus Sunak. Yeah. And the question is going to be, is it Truss or is it Badenoch? We'll explore throughout the show. John Sargent, Benjamin Butterworth, Carol Malone, they're with me for the entire two hours. But coming up with pandemic hysterics, returning to scaremongering about the sun, is the establishment trying to terrify us over heat waves just like they did with COVID? Man of the people and former Cory actor Charlie Lawson gives his no-nonsense take at 9.40. But up next in The Clash, was booting out Boris' mistake for the Tory party? Carol Malone thinks so. I do too. But what do my lineup of political masterminds reckon? Former Conservative MP Louise Mensch, Tory commentator Albia Mancona, spectator columnist Damien O'Reilly, Conservative activist Emily Hewitson and business leader, philanthropist and founder of Phones For You, John Caldwell, all join me after the break. Plus... I'll reveal your verdict. That's going to be fascinating. Email me down at gbnews.uk. Tweet me using the handle at gbnews. Our poll running there too. We're back in just two minutes. Unfiltered opinion from Charlie Lawson and Neil Oliver on the way this hour, but it's time now for The Clash. While the Tory leadership contenders were busy tearing each other apart on stage, their predecessor, Boris Johnson, was having a brilliant weekend. The outgoing maverick prime minister did his best Top Gun impression as he flew in the cockpit of a £75 million Typhoon fighter jet and compared the thrill-seeking flight to his turbulent premiership, declaring he had performed some pretty difficult, if not astonishing, feats. 
And today he went down swinging as he addressed MPs during the confidence vote in his government. This is one of the most dynamic governments of modern times. Not just, not just overcoming adversity on a scale we haven't seen for centuries, but delivering throughout adversity. We got Brexit done, and though the rejoiners, the rejoiners and the revengers were left plotting and planning and biding their time, and I will have more to say about the events of the last few weeks and months in due course, we delivered on every single one of our promises. So what do you think, considering all he achieved and the calibre of the Tory leadership contenders, was it a mistake for the party to dump Boris Johnson? My email address, dan at gbnews.uk. You can tweet your thoughts at gbnews. We've got a poll running there. Those results are going to be fascinating. I'll bring you the results soon. But to help you make up your mind, I'm going to bring in a new raft of political masterminds to clash tonight. I'm joined by spectator columnist Damien O'Reilly, former Tory MP Louise Mensch, conservative activist Emily Hewitt, an entrepreneur and billionaire philanthropist John Caldwell, and political commentator Albi Amancona. So, Damien, you wrote a, a fascinating column in The Spectator where you essentially said, yes, this is a huge mistake. With, with Boris gone, it's difficult to differentiate the Tories from the Labour Party. Yes, my point was uh, that it was extremely hasty to get rid of him. He's a once-in-a-generation politician. He's a serial election-winning machine. Um, and with him out of the, the way, you realise uh, just quite how mediocre the candidates to replace him are. Um, and there is nothing really to uh, separate them from the Labour Party. And I predict... Uh, as a result, they will likely lose the next election uh, quite badly and probably be out of power for, in the column I say, up to a decade. So, Louise Mensch, that's what Damien Riley says. You were supporting Boris Johnson, but in hindsight, you now think it's the best thing that he's gone. Well, the fact is, as he said himself, those are the breaks. And I think we can look at people that pushed him out. We can look at Rishi and we can look at Liz Truss. He was underestimated for most of his political career, I will say that about Boris, um, by absolutely everybody. And I think you're underestimating Penny more than now. Honestly, I don't know how many times Liz Truss has to fail to beat her, uh, this massive Remainer, for you to accept that Conservative MPs prefer Penny by quite some distance. And that but is... But the, the right wing is right split, now. Louise. It's split. You know that. It's split between Badenoch and Truss. That block combined takes the right-wing candidate right, we... to the final two. If that were true, and it isn't, Liz Truss would have got more votes. I think Penny's best line at the debate yesterday, and it was a killer one for me, was, I am the only person on this stage who has taken a seat from Labour. That's absolutely true. Everybody else is in a cushy, safe seat. She knows how to fight. She knows how to win. She's been doing it since she was a teenager, brought her little brother up from the age of 15. And she's yeah, yeah. her decency is what people want. They don't want these cat fights. They don't want this yeah. sniping. They don't want what you saw. You saw your, your picture of Liz Truss right there that you said it was a killer blow. Well, while she was saying that people have been let down, a conservative government was in power. She's saying she went into she went into politics because people were let down. Well, then she's accusing the conservatives. And I think when you look at Penny, I was in the trenches in Brexit with her. She's Brexit through and through. She did not stab um, Boris in the back. And she's the leader that we need. And that's why she is second, not third, like your girl Liz. <laughs> I, I, I haven't declared. I haven't declared. I'm just stating the facts of where it is. 
Emily Hewitson, you've actually done the flip reverse to Louise Mensch, right? You thought at the time it was right for Boris to go. Now you're looking at the leadership contenders and thinking, what the heck have we done? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, although at the same time, I think just with quite how many resignations happened, it basically made his position untenable. But at the same time, looking at the top two, which is likely, I believe, to be Rishi and Trust, um, because I think, unfortunately, the actual Conservative candidate, which is Kemi, is going to get knocked out and most of her votes will go to Trust. So I do think it will end up being Trust or Sunak. And then we have a real problem. It's like picking the trash between the trash. Um, on one hand, we've got Liz Truss, who I don't believe can win an election. I mean, we saw how dreadful she was in that first debate. Uh, I just don't think she could either win the membership ballot, let alone a general election. Then you've got Rishi Sunak, and I see all these MPs supporting him. And I just think, what was the whole point of ousting Boris if you're just going to replace him with his right-hand man who supported him all along the way, apart from the last minute when, in fact, he turned out to be a mm. massive snake? Well, yeah, and he it's a continuation of his economic policy too, which is currently damning the country to a lack of growth and a cost-of-living crisis. Now, look, John Caldwell, I've got to bring you in on this because you know the candidates look to a bloke like you. They need your support. They want your money. How do you feel? Do you feel like it was a mistake looking at these candidates for the Tories to wave bye-bye to Boris Johnson prematurely? Well, I feel very disappointed with all the candidates that are left, that's for sure. I don't really? see anybody that uh, I would really want to give my support to. But... Boris, unfortunately, had to go. But it's really actually very sad because he was a powerful and charismatic leader. He was able to make decisions and lead. And uh, but unfortunately, with the... John, we're just losing your line. We're, we'll try and get you back. But in the meantime, Albia Mancona, do you want to react to that? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think I broadly agree with with John. Actually, I think his position was absolutely untenable. I think seeing Boris in Parliament today in the confidence motion debate, it was just vintage Boris. He was really reeling off all of those wins that he'd had in Parliament. You know, getting Brexit done, the vaccine rollout, the eighty-seat majority. But ultimately, his behaviour over Pincher, over Partygate, over the Patterson scandal, really not being able to get a grasp of these issues, which should have been simple for a man of his caliber to overcome was really his undoing. And that means we are left with the, with the contenders that are left in the competition. And actually, I think I would slightly disagree. I think there are some pretty talented candidates in there, but I don't think they'll win. I think Kemi Badenoch and Penny Morden do seem to me like very talented conservative candidates, but I don't see them in the final two. Damien Riley, what was interesting to me is you raised the point that it's not just about policies or politics with Boris. It's something to do with his charisma and intelligence. And you say now suddenly both parties seem people only with the usual chances and terminally dull corporate-sounding droids. So there's clearly no-one uh, running for the Tory party that you feel, yeah. Damien, can challenge Boris in terms of the charisma and the ability to win a general election. Oh, without doubt. And the, the debates made that horribly clear. You look at them and 
the, the kind of people that if you were at a social event and you realised you were sat next to someone like Liz Truss, you would try your hardest to get away. And, and the same for, for others. There's no one there that... Oh, that's a bit tough. I think, Come on. I think Boris Johnson... Uh, the Tories, the Conservatives have never had a leader who is so capable of speaking to working-class people as well as to aristocrats uh, in living memory, certainly not since Margaret Thatcher. And I think they're mad, absolutely mad, to chuck him out um, over stuff that kind of is relatively small beer in the grand scheme of things. John Caldwell, uh, let me just ask you, I, I, I'm going to put a gun to your head and say you've got to write a £100,000 cheque uh, to, to, to one of the final four? Who, who do you go for? <laughs> I think I'd be better going to the Monte Carlo casino and sticking it on red, <laughs> because I don't think... I'm, I, I cannot at this moment bet on any of those candidates. Rishi Sunak made an absolute mess of chancellorship. He made so many mistakes. It was devastating for the economy. And he is presiding over this fiasco that we're now experiencing and so but oh no every time john gets going we we just lose him but we got got the point there louise mench is the conservative party in trouble I don't think it is, because, again, you know, all I hear from you guys is doom and gloom, and that's not what we want from the party of Thatcher. That's not what we want from the party of Boris. Stop saying that we're going to have two candidates that are definitely going to lose, and I do agree with everybody. Rishi will lose to Labour, and Liz Truss will lose to Labour, and that's why Penny Morton is going to be one of the final two. And let me tell you, somebody who knows her pretty well, if you're looking for somebody who's fun to have a beer with and who's enjoyable at parties... All you have to do is watch Penny Morden's loyal address. She is hilarious. She is a lot of fun. I won't, you know, I won't want to saddle her with any any nicknames, but she's got personality and she's got spirit and she's got a backstory that can actually beat Labour. She's done it locally, she can do it nationally. We don't give up in this party. We don't say we're faced with these two losers, Mr. and Mrs. Potato Head. <laughs> that's not the way it goes. Would Maggie Thatcher do that? No, she wouldn't. And well, that's Emily Hewitt's for everything you guys say. She's second. She's still second. Well, well Emily, is, is that not a strong argument? Louise says, hang on a moment, uh, don't mourn Boris because I've, I'm presenting you an election winner in, in Penny Mordaunt. Why are you not convinced by Penny, Emily? Um, well, it all sounds like, um, you know, a lovely deal that I'd love to get on board with, but if you speak to anyone that's ever worked with Penny, one word keeps coming up, and that's incompetent. That's a real issue. If, she, if she's going to be the um, next most amazing prime minister, why are all of her former colleagues coming out to say that she's really incompetent? And it's not just people that, um, you know, want to push a certain campaign. I've spoken to my personal MP friends who have also heard similar. Mm. Louise Mench, I mean, Amanda Patel, uh, the Daily Mail columnist who used to be the head of communications for the Conservative Party, or for William Hague anyway, used to work closely uh, with Penny Morton. She was on this sofa last week saying she's a lovely person, completely agrees with you, you could go for a drink with her, but she doesn't have a big brain. That was how Amanda Patel put it politely. Uh, please, then, obviously, there's again, Lord Frost saying that she wasn't... You know I mean, I'm just reporting back what's been her. said. I like her, but but what, what, how do you respond to that, Louise? Because a lot of folk are saying I that. would tell anybody who's heard that, which is nonsense, because her colleagues at the ministries have been coming out and defending her. I mean, David Davis, the least woke man in England, was defending <laughs> her the other day. True. And I would say to you... I would say to you, go onto YouTube and look up, just Google, 
Penny Mordant, Angela Rayner. You watch her oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. playing Angela Rayner alive. It was like House Bolton, yeah. Game of Thrones. And then you come back and you tell me that she doesn't have a big brain. She knows how to deal with labor, no problem whatsoever. Uh, she is very bright, she is very smart, and you, you shouldn't listen to the PR briefings that other campaigns are putting out. You should go and check it out for yourself. She's the decent candidate, she's the common sense candidate. She reflects what grassroots conservatives are like and British voters in general are like. Damien and Emily, I, I know right now, like me, you probably feel Boris would be the better bet. If you had to go for one of the final four, who would it be, Damien? Penny, she has good hair. Emily? Oh, I'm, I'm feeling fine if we can get Kemi onto the final two. And then everything will be just fine, but we need to get her onto the final two. And I think what this contest has shown is that the Conservative MPs and the membership, there's a big divide between them. What the members want um, and what the Conservative MPs want is very different. And I think that's really showing this. Big time. I totally agree with that point. And Albia Mancona, final word to you. Who are you backing? For me, it's got to be between either Penny Mordaunt or Kemi Badenoch. OK. Look, great debate. Conservatives Against Racism co-founder Alvia Vancona, spectator columnist Damien Riley, former Tory MP Louise Mensch, and the Conservative activist Emily Hewitson. Thank you so much, too. We lost him at the end. But brilliant to hear the thoughts of the entrepreneur, billionaire philanthropist John Caldwell. Let me tell you, the Tory party high command will be very unhappy with John Caldwell saying there are just none of those candidates he would want to write a cheque for. So... Who do you agree with, considering the Tory leadership contenders? Was it a mistake to dump Boris Johnson? From Drew on Twitter, long-term, no. Short-term, we need to see which course of direction the ship will now be steered. From Janet on email, we had a perfectly good PM, and because of a bunch of traitors, we are stuck with the most boring three-plus-one backstabber who can never be trusted. I wish Boris had just called an election and not resigned. We voted for him. And I believe we'd most certainly have kept him in. And from Rich, you don't keep a rotten apple in the fruit bowl just because you don't fancy the oranges. What an analogy. Your verdict now in. Wow, this is fascinating. 72% of you agree. Now that you've looked at the Tory candidates, it was a mistake to dump Boris. 28% of you say it wasn't. Tomorrow in The Clash, we're going to do something really interesting, actually. We're going to put the final three in this uh, Tory leadership election versus Boris Johnson, so you can specifically choose your candidates. Neil Oliver and Lionel Shriver still to come, but first, not satisfied with tearing away our civil liberties for years in the name of COVID, the hysterical establishment is now trying to reduce us to doing the same thing over the heat. With forecasters predicting a record high of 41 degrees this week, the fear-mongering mainstream media channels are spiralling with irresponsible, alarmist headlines, even predicting death for thousands. Think I'm making it up? Just look at this. Normal, everyday life has had its challenges today. 
In central London, some still braved an open-top bus tour. The heat is dangerous. A level four heat health emergency has been declared, meaning that even those who are fit and healthy are in danger. Schools closed, runways melting, rail lines buckling as Britain bakes in the heat waves. And it's, it really just isn't worth the risk of taking them outside. Yeah, real concerns. Got my uh, trusty thermometer here. 32 degrees it's telling me at the moment. It feels really hot. I genuinely didn't think in my forecasting career in the next 20, 20 years, even then I'll be predicting these temperatures. So when people are saying, this is just summer, we should get out and enjoy it, this is not the kind of weather to get out and enjoy. I did, and I will. The outraged NHS GP Renee Hodenkamp took to Twitter to call out the BBC in particular for whipping up panic. She wrote, I don't watch TV normally, but in hospital today and turned on BBC News, and what a mistake. It is wall-to-wall -wall weather hysteria. Correspondents all over the place in parks, even Battersea Dogs Home advising on battling pools for dogs. We have officially gone mad. Despite the health establishment's desire for the country to grind to a halt, for the vast majority of us, this is a lovely hot day where we can put on a bit of sunscreen, go out and enjoy it with absolutely no consequences to our health and certainly without dropping dead. Ex-Curry actor, voice of the people, Charlie Lawson is here now. Charlie, I mean... Look, you must remember 1976, right? There, there, there was something like <laughs> 16 days in a row of plus 30 degree weather. Yeah, it was. There were good times. Actually, I was I was a lot younger, but I do remember those times. You were a mere well. baby. The trouble is, yeah. The trouble is, Dan. We've we've had behavioural scientists telling us stuff for the last two and a half years about COVID and all the rest of it, and what it has done has actually made a significant number of millions of people in the country become so risk-averse that they are now subconsciously requiring to be told when to fart or when to... Do you know what I mean? Ju they just they, they feel without knowing it that, that they have to be told by somebody from the uh, UK Health Security Agency. And really, you know, when you think about the fact that there were soldiers fighting in Afghanistan in full battle uniform mm. in 110 degrees, you know. And, and and this argument that that old people... Look, I've always said this. I said it about COVID and I said it to you. Of course the vulnerable need to be looked after. Yeah. That goes without saying. It's got nothing to do with bloody sunshine or, or cold or whatever. We should do that irrespective of whatever. But, um, you know, do not stop telling me to wear baggy clothes and, and do this and do... You know, it's none of your bloody business. And I was out in the garden today, Dan, doing the ironing. Debbie was at work, so I was doing the ironing. And I put the factor on, and I had some lots of nice cold water, and I thoroughly enjoyed the sunshine. And it was 86 up here in Cheshire, you know? Totally. And, and Charlie, the thing that really disturbs me is young and healthy people being told to stay at home. Well, actually, Charlie, if that happens, if that is how society ends up, that puts the vulnerable at risk. I mean, who's going to deliver food for these people? Who's going to look after them at the GP's surgery if young and healthy people are staying at home? The messaging has to change. It should be if you're young and healthy, go and live your life. You're going to be absolutely fine, just like we're absolutely fine when we go on holiday to Spain or Thailand. If you're vulnerable, we'll look after you. That's what the messaging should be. 
there was a girl on the on the news this morning saying that she was going to shut the schools down. Oh. And, um, you know, it, it's just we are raising um, a bunch of risk averse young people who will be too scared to do anything unless they get permission by some health security agency or whatever. And it's it's to the detriment of this great country of ours. And uh, you and I and, and everybody else uh, on GB News and other certain other channels have seen this happening for you know, I've seen it going on for, for the last sort of two and a half, nearly three years. And fortunately, you know, plenty of us decided that we were big enough and brave enough and bad enough and ugly enough to make up our own decisions. And at the same token, look after our, our elderly and vulnerable people. And, and that's that's what we've done, you know. And um, I'm afraid the whole thing um, really just makes me angry. And, and I feel very disappointed for the young people. And, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, you know, God help us if we have to send an army to, to Ukraine or anywhere else, because, um, you know, we're, we're, rearing a, we're rearing a younger generation that really um, we, we want to be proud of. But if we keep spoon feeding them and wiping their backsides for them until they're 25, we'll never get anywhere. I know, and, and, and say, no, don't worry, little Marty, you can stay in bed today because it's a little bit hot and I'm going to call up the school and say he's not going to come in. No, you get to school, you get to your job, we're here in 40-degree heat, that's how society keeps going. Charlie Lawson, man of the people, we'll speak next week. Charlie, thank you so much. First look at tomorrow's newspaper front pages coming up. And now Neil Oliver is tonight's outsider. And if you thought England manager Gareth Southgate couldn't sink any deeper into the murky waters of virtue signalling, think again. Following his persistence in getting England to take the knee at a World Cup marred by concerns of serious human rights and gay rights abuses, Southgate is now allegedly preparing to axe some of his Three Lions stars who have declined to take the COVID vaccine. A handful of unvaccinated players expected to make the team for this winter's tournament are now sweating over their inclusion in the squad because they'd have to isolate for five days on arrival in Qatar. Southgate is reportedly close to telling them all to stay home and watch the action from their sofas. Already some England players in question have been named on social media despite not being identified formally, raising unfair questions over their private and confidential health information. And that's before you get into the injustice of these hard-working and talented England stars being denied the chance to play some of the most important matches of their lives. So, Neil Oliver, look, we're used to liberal hypocrisy from Gareth Southgate on a raft of issues. But why does he think it's acceptable to consider ditching England players from the World Cup simply based on their vaccination status? I have no idea why he thinks that's acceptable because I think by any reasonable measure it's unacceptable. It's coercion, uh, pure and simple. He's preying on young elite athletes' uh, desire to play in a World Cup. For some of them, it will be the only chance. It will be the highlight of a of a career. Uh, and this is, you know, carrot and stick psychology basically saying, take this experimental procedure of unproven safety or you can't come to Qatar with the rest of the squad. I mean, that's what it boils down to. Uh, forcing people to take an experimental medical procedure is against 
players, human beings, inalienable rights. Their vaccine status should be none of uh, Gareth Southgate's business. Um, by, by any stretch, by any stretch, there is already evidence of harm caused by these injections. Mark Stein on this channel, yourself on this channel, have, have uh, turned a, a bright and revealing light on, on those people, some of those people, a handful of those people here in the UK who've been hurt and, and killed so far uh, on account of these injections, to not accept by now that there are reasons for reasonable people, especially elite sportsmen and women, in this instance, sportsmen who who are so rightly preoccupied with their health, with their fitness, what goes into their bodies, the long-term consequences of anything that they do to their bodies, to not allow those people to, to make the decision for themselves about whether or not they take this procedure uh, and to and, and to basically say it's it's my way or the highway is it's naked coercion. It absolutely is, Neil. And I've also got such an issue over some of the media coverage of this because they're almost using coded language to out players who have chosen not to have the vaccine. So we saw it with three Man City players who I obviously won't name. They didn't go on the American trip. And, and, and it's been written sort of you can read between the lines, oh, here are the vaccine refused. And I'm sorry, Neil, we would not do this with any other medical condition or any other medical procedure. What happened to that medical privacy? It's, it's beyond the pale. You're absolutely right. And in any sane universe, the, the, the rightness and wrongness that you have just outlined would be upheld. Um, it's, there's already, there are hundreds, hundreds at least, if not thousands of sports people uh, at high levels of performance, professionals and and people at high levels in the amateur games, uh, you know, collapsing on the pitch or, or or in training with with heart conditions, post post vaccination. These these instances are happening at levels that that commentators are saying they've they've never seen before. A, a, an unprecedented question mark is hanging over uh, the, the the safety of these products at the moment. And now, for goodness sake, I mean, it's it's two years in mm. uh, and the, the, they're still being coerced to take the chance. I think mm. that's unforgivable. Why isn't Gareth Southgate's priority his players' health and fitness? Mm. Well, I remember, you know, Neil, I having thought, Matt Letizier on this show a number of months ago now, and Matt has taken serious flack throughout the MSM because he's incredibly influential in the world of football and people are saying, you naughty man, uh, putting these footballers off getting the jab. He's not doing that, Neil. All he asked the football associations for months ago on this show is to launch an investigation and actually find out the facts so that the players can be assured of the vaccine safety. And we know that hasn't happened, Neil, because they cannot assure the players of the they, vaccine safety. They, they cannot. They cannot. The, the, the data are not there to enable that. But the way, and, and the way, I mean, the, the, the procedure has already been administered to half the population of the planet, and the outcomes of those people are not being tracked. So it, it, it begs the question if the kind of safety 
data that's that's so urgently required will ever be properly available. But but the fact is, across all the databases, the VAERS system, that's the American system, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting yeah. System, the similar system in the UK, that four million adverse effects have been logged on the on the VAERS system, and everyone agrees that that's probably no more than a tenth of what has actually happened because it's a voluntary system and not all adverse effects by any stretch of the imagination mm -hmm. are logged. In the UK, 500,000 adverse effects. You know, In the past, with traditional vaccines, swine flu, uh, polio vaccines in the past, in the 70s and other times, you know, in, in living memory, have been withdrawn after you know, the, the, the swine flu vaccine in 76 was withdrawn after 53 reported deaths. The, the polio vaccine report, withdrawn after a year after 10 reported deaths. There's, there's tens of thousands of reported deaths associated with these products. And yet after two years, they're still out there, which is scandalous enough. Mm. But the fact that a group of elite sportsmen uh, whose lives and livelihood depend upon their physical health and well-being are being coerced in the glare of the world's publicity to either out themselves as as people who haven't taken the procedure and you know and and roll up their sleeves and take it against their will, I cannot believe that this this uh, shameful spectacle is unfolding in Britain, it, mm. being egged on and cheerled by the by the media. I know these people and all of these people, ashamed. by the way, who campaign for bodily autonomy uh, when it's about females in the U.S. but don't have the same feeling when it's about. Uh, sports people here in the UK. Neil, Oliver, thank you so much. Uh, of course, both sides of the story here on GB News and a government spokesperson has told us all vaccines have undergone robust clinical trials and meet the UK medical regulators' strict standards of safety, effectiveness and quality. Tomorrow's news tonight now in our Media Buzz. First look at the front page is hot off the press and hot being the operative word for the evening. The Metro warns us to get ready for the hottest day ever tomorrow with temperatures set to be the record 38.7 degrees set in 2019. Of course, didn't happen today though, did it? Uh, the baby shares a picture of a copper giving a Queen's Guard soldier a sip of much needed water during today's balmy weather. My goodness, I'm hot enough in here, so cannot imagine how that poor bloke feels. The Daily Star also carrying that picture of the parched Queen's Guard, asking Brits to spare a thought for uniformed folk like him as temperatures soar. And the eye reveals Prince Charles is set to intervene in politics again by saying the UK's net zero commitments have, quote, never been more important off the back of our balmy weather today. Oh, my goodness, he just doesn't... just doesn't get it, does he? Not your job, Charles. Not your job. My superstar panel back with me now, Daily Express columnist Carl Malone, star reporter at the I newspaper Benjamin Butterworth and the political journalist John Sargent. Now, as the country buckles under a crippling cost of living crisis, tax is the number one issue at the forefront of the Tory leadership competition. And it exploded last night in that heated hour-long ITV debate that laid bare the stark economic divisions between Boris backstabber Rishi Sunak and current Foreign Secretary Liz Truss who has stayed loyal to the PM. I'd love to stand here. I'd love to stand here and say, look, I'll cut this tax, that tax, and another tax, and it will all be OK. But you know what? 
It won't. There's a cost to these things, the cost of higher inflation, higher mortgage rates, eroded savings. And you know what? This something-for-nothing economics isn't conservative. Uh, it's uh, socialism. Under your plans, we are predicted to have a recession because you have raised tax, it is cutting back on growth, it is preventing companies from investing, and it's taking money out of people's pockets. I heard, Penny, you on the, the, radio, on the TV this morning saying that you were going to scrap one of my rules, that the government shouldn't borrow for day-to-day -day spending. Now, look, it's one thing to borrow for long-term investment, but it's a whole other thing to put the day-to-day -day bills on the country's credit card, and we know how that ends. It's not just wrong, it's dangerous. And you know what? Even Jeremy Corbyn didn't suggest that we should go that far. The issue of tax and spending could clinch who becomes Prime Minister with Fishy Rishi, who is responsible for the highest taxes in 70 years, insisting inflation must be brought under control before the government can cut taxes, while Liz has promised immediate tax cuts worth as much as £30 billion. Penny Mordaunt, on the other hand, is bizarrely keeping her hands close to her chest, declaring she will give for its extra cost of living help, but won't tell anyone what it is until the autumn budget, which surely defeats the purpose of this entire campaign. But with Sunak and Truss locking horns on the issue, how important is it for the next leader to agree to a lower tax rate and immediate tax cuts, John Sargent? Because I feel like this is shaping up as the key issue of the campaign. It is the key issue, and, of course, as always, with issues like that, it gets extremely complicated. People long to simplify it, but we've got a period of economic uncertainty, which I certainly can't remember. People actually do not have any clear view as to where the economy will be in three months' time, let alone the whole of next year. Now, Rishi Sunak was stuck with that budget statement earlier on. We were on the programme together. Mm. And it was incoherent. It was a shambles. Taxes went up. Some of them went up. Some of them went down. Some of, some of them were then given back. So confusion reigned completely. One of the reasons, I suspect, why Boris had to go was because the feeling that no-one's in charge of all But, but he says tax cuts are inflationary. But what about all of his giveaways? I mean, no, sure. this, does, no, no. this doesn't make economic no, sense. No, it doesn't I mean. make economic sense because there are some taxes. It's all to do with what you believe. What, what you believe is the cause of inflation. Now, if you remember under Margaret Thatcher, it's all quite simple. Control the monetary supply. Control the money supply and inflation will then keep down. So you look at every move and say, well, is it going to increase the money supply or is it going to reduce the money supply? But now people are not sure about that, partly because they couldn't measure the money supply. So I'm sorry to sound as if I just go from one gloomy prognostication to another, but you just think this is a very, very tricky moment. And I have to say, I like the idea of caution. Just say, don't say, let's do it immediately. Why? Because the timetable would be based upon this extraordinary election that's going on. Not the state of the economy, but we based upon who wins this election. Then on the day that they take over, they announce a tax change. Well, that seems to be about the worst possible reason for doing anything. But, Carol Malone, we have had a big state, high-tax Tory government. I actually believe it's really important for the next leader to say... No, maybe we did that for good reasons or whatever over COVID. We can argue about that another time. But I'm immediately...
going to return us on a path to low tax because that's what the Conservative Party is meant to be about, Carol. Yes, it is, but, but you know, that's in, that's in normal times. We are not in normal times. We're just coming out of a global pandemic and we have multi more billions to pay back than we would have had normally. It's interesting. I mean, I'm not an economist. I don't know whether what Liz Truss says is true, that not lowering taxes will choke off the economy. I don't know if that's true. But, when, you know, but, but, and I listen to Rishi where he says, if I could cut tax after tax, I would. Um, but and I wish I could tell you it would be OK. Now, now that makes sense to me, that caution is, is the watchword here. But it's interesting, there's a, a new... Um, it's not a new, it's a, it's, a very, it's a leading think tank called the Centre for, for Economics and Business Research. It has come out today and said that even with the red-hot inflation we have now, it means the Treasury is set to, to have £60 billion more than it predicted to have by 2025. Mm. And what it's basically saying is that, you know, the Treasury will be awash with money, which will mean yeah. Rishi can exactly. give some tax We can afford but tax cuts. Yeah, but can, I, what, no, can I, mean, I interrupt for a second there? Yes. This depends upon what else happens. The mistake yeah, no, is no. to imagine that it's a static analysis. Just analyse it now and you'll be right in three years' time. Very unlikely. What else is going to happen to inflation but, but, but Benjamin, in the next three years? Where's the differentiation between the Conservatives and the Labour Party? No, no, no. If the, the moment... Tories keep on being a high-stake no, party. it doesn't party. mean to say you have to act in a crazy fashion whenever you feel like it to prove mm. your sort of machismo, that you, to prove you're a tough Tory. I know what I'll do. Let's do this straight away. No, you want to be sensible. Well, I think we have to do it straight away. And then, of course, you move actually, John, if you're a Tory. I think we have to do it straight away. I mean, I'm sorry, I... when we're talking about high-keying corporation tax. Well, Benjamin, you come in. Yeah, I mean, I think John's made some wise points that actually what's never good is to base this on the volatility of the politics that are going on, and they've been very volatile. But the problem is that some tax cuts could be inflationary because you have both problems on supply and demand. So £200 billion more in savings in this country now than there was before the pandemic because there's a considerable chunk of society that got things like uh, furlough, that yeah. wasn't spending any money and does have money Squirreled to spend. Away. So you're seeing things like hotels, restaurants, holidays being far more expensive than usual because there's demand, while on the other side there's lots of basics where we have a supply shortage. So you've got inflation coming from both sides. But you don't know how long that high demand will last. You, you don't, but what I would just say, so just to say, is that the problem is that ultimately when they're talking about tax cuts and they've announced about 300, between the full 11 at the start, about £360 billion of cuts or expenditure. Right. So it's farcical. I just don't right. believe them. I don't believe that if they win on, become PM on, what is it, 6th of September, when Boris will hand in his notice to the Queen, I don't believe that they'll follow through with this. I think it's a race to win over but, right uh, and yeah, talk. I mean, Final word, Liz, Carol. Liz Truss is saying that, that she would lower taxes because she knows that's popular with voters, but it's not fiscally responsible yeah, but it is to run a country Look, it is what, what Liz Truss believes, do. though, because she was one of the few Cabinet Ministers alongside Jacob Rees-Mogg who, when Sunak wanted to increase the national insurance, for example, she fought against it at the Cabinet table. Now, obviously, she didn't resign. There's collective Cabinet responsibility. I would argue she was in a very important job, given she was overseeing our efforts when it come, came to the Ukraine war, war as Foreign Secretary. But she does believe in low tax. She is a low-tax well, Tory. But the Tories do believe, but the, sometimes circumstances make that mm. not possible. Well, I'm struggling... I am struggling to believe that Sunak believes in low tax. Now... Uh, it's breaking news. In the last few minutes, the government has won its no-confidence vote in Parliament by 349 votes to 238. It was called by the government after an earlier attempt by Labour, despite Boris Johnson resigning and the ongoing Tory leadership contest. What a waste of time. What a waste of parliamentary time.
on with the media buzz now. Not so long ago, she was at risk of being out of a job thanks to her beer and curry night during lockdown. Now Labour deputy Angela Rayner has not just one job, but two, after making her debut as a DJ on LBC this morning. Now, this may come as a shock to many of you, seeing as she's been so against, so against MPs taking second jobs. Remember this? Well, they think we're all on the take. And, and that's not true. Many MPs want to do their best by their constituents, and the Prime Minister's just made it, you know, undermined all of that. And I don't want people to think that MPs are in there for a second job or to feather their own nest. Oh, no, Angela, having your own show on a national radio station isn't feathering your own nest. Not at all. Uh, I had a listen today. I could stomach about half an hour. Uh, and while she was charming, I will give her that. Was she? There was certainly no political balance. I mean, it's hard to be diplomatic with the situation. You know, Boris Johnson partying yesterday, quite frankly, it should be right out of number 10, having no, nothing to do with government at all. I mean, he's proven himself to be a liar. And, you know, the amount of money that they busted on giving contracts in COVID to their mates was just... It is sleaze and scandal. It's just, like, the worst thing ever. Now, it's not the only occasion in the past few days in which Labour has lost all perspective about real atrocities in this world. Yesterday, party leader Keir Starmer released an election video based around his recent trip to Germany with Shadow Foreign Secretary David Lammy, set against the backdrop of Berlin's Holocaust Memorial. Look. The Labour Party in the United Kingdom is ready for an election, ready to win an election and ready to govern. Now, many have hit out at Starmer for that tasteless footage with the campaign against anti-Semitism saying there was a long-standing convention of politicians avoiding using the memorial to promote themselves. Exploiting the tragedy of the Holocaust for your own political gain. Just grim. John Sargent, Benjamin. Welcome back. Former favourite Penny Mordaunt's leadership campaign is faltering after her claims that she's never supported gender self-identification came under fresh scrutiny. Leaked government documents suggested the ex-equalities minister previously backed watering down the legal process for transitioning by removing at least one of the medical requirements. Mordaunt yesterday hit back at the, quote, toxic smears being deployed against her. Do you think trans people should have to get a diagnosis of gender dysphoria before they can legally change their gender? Uh, yes, and if you look at the article in the Sunday Times today, that is stated very clearly in that document. This has been rebutted many times, and I have to say, we, can all, we all know what's going on. And as I say, this is the type of toxic politics that people want to get away from. There's a number of smears going on in the papers. That's not representative of how my party operates. But the news did get worse for her this morning as the Daily Mail front page condemned her dodgy judgment after she met with a controversial Muslim group while she was a minister. Morden had FaceTime with the Muslim Council of Britain leader Zara Muhammad, despite the group being the subject of a government boycott since 2009 after its deputy secretary-general was accused of condoning attacks on British troops. Spectator columnist and top author Lionel Shriver joins me now. So, 
Lionel, it's been a bit of a disastrous weekend for, for Penny Mordaunt. This time last week, we were talking about her as a potential Prime Minister. Do you feel like her campaign is now in tatters? Um, I, I would love that to be the case. I mean, if that's bad news for Penny, then it's good news for us. I, I Why do you think is, that? Of the lot, probably the worst possible choice for PM. And why um, do you why do you think that? Well, just in general, I think that the Tories have made the same mistake that the Democratic Party has has made in the U.S. Where I am right now, um, moving far to the left and away from their natural constituency, and. Uh, Penny is emblematic of, of that shift. I mean, she can, um, she can try to backtrack if she wants, but she wrote a book. And I should know, you know, books are forever. And that's the problem. <laughs> People can go look at them and quote you, and you, they're not subject to revision once they've been published. And um, she's, you know, she uses all the, the woke lingo, like, uh, white privilege and obsession with colonialism and microaggressions and the whole purpose of that kind of language is tribal signaling it's like i'm one of you well that doesn't mean i'm one of the conservatives this is signaling to the wrong camp and um i just think she she is you know if she's if she's not you know woke up the bum then she's just somebody who uh, blows in the wind. And and therefore, you know, at that time, it seemed uh, convenient to her to seem to be sympathetic with um, that kind of so-called progressive perspective. Uh, and now it isn't. So now she has to cloak herself differently. What you're left with is a sense that she doesn't believe anything in particular. And it feels like... One, one, oh, sorry, I was just say one slightly cheerful thing about this whole uh, Tempest in a Teacup is that uh, she's been directly quoted over and over again as saying um, tra trans women are women and trans men are men and that, you know, she's on the record on that one. And the truth of the matter is that you decode that. It means uh, men are women and women are men. And what is, what's cheerful about this is that you know, only three or four years ago, you absolutely couldn't say what I just said on TV, you know, without someone knocking at your door. Um, yeah. And I think that's changed. And I think the whole discussion around transgenderism is now allowing for a little bit of discussion. And that's why she's suffering. Whereas back when she mouthed this so-called truism, there was no risk to it. It was orthodoxy. It was yeah. the only thing you could say. Yeah, if you yeah. wanted to be woke, exactly. And now the fight back for common sense has begun. I think that's really good analysis of, of the collapse of Mordaunt's campaign. Of course, Lionel, real developments tonight, though, in terms of whether it will be, if it's not Mordaunt, it's not looking like it will be, if it will be Liz Truss or Badenoch on the right of the party taking on Sunak, uh, do you have a preference when it comes to those two candidates? I can't stand any of them. <laughs> and I think, <laughs> a lot of people are feeling that way, Lionel. They have a great deal uh, in common 
with most of the country. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I find Cami very appealing. Uh, I, I share the view of many that she is perhaps underprepared, doesn't have quite enough experience, but I like her general attitude. She's one of the only candidates who has been forceful about uh, wanting to take a stand against woke politics and seems to appreciate the importance of the culture wars. Um, Truss is very wooden. Uh, I, I, in her defense, I think it's very important that she has uh, taken a stand on the Northern Irish Protocol and would wildly revise it so that Northern Ireland is suddenly again uh, a member of good standing of the United Kingdom. Um, so I like that about her. Uh, the truth of the matter, and I hate to say this, I think as a person, as a politician, and as an intellect, though I disagree with him enormously on a range of things, uh, I think Sunak is probably the most capable. Mm. Mm. Yeah, you'll be, <laughs> I mean, can't quite deal with the, the thought of him as prime minister right now, Lionel, I have to be honest. And I don't think the Tory membership will vote for him after the way he backstabbed Boris. I don't think that the, with any of these leaders, uh, aside possibly from Kimmy, that's, a, you know, as she describes herself, she's a wild card. So that's completely unpredictable. But I would say with both trust, trust and um, Rishi, they they wouldn't they wouldn't win in twenty four, not from not yeah. from perspective, not not from right now. It, Which it, does it need to be a consideration bad. for the party, of course, and it's worrying times. Your analysis spot on as ever. Spectator columnist, best-selling author Lionel Shriver. Thank you so much, Lionel. Let's return to tomorrow's news tonight now on our media buzz. Lots of front pages in. The Daily Telegraph warns us it's going to get hotter while also covering that unwelcome intervention from Prince Charles, who says the, quote, alarming heat we've seen today and a brace for tomorrow has confirmed his climate fears. Oh, I just want to say to him, 1976, The Guardian leads on Boris Johnson being accused of checking out early from his role as PM after missing a Cobra meeting... <laughs> on the weather. I'm actually delighted. He thought, you know what, I can leave this one to Kitmalt House, it's fine. The Independent leads with a High Court judge ruling that the government has failed to outline how it will achieve its net zero strategy. Apparently the proposals for meeting the target were too vague for it to claim it was able to meet its promise. It also shows a photo of a wildfire which occurred near Chesterfield. The Times splashes on this fascinating Tory leadership race we've been covering all night. They say it's been thrown wide open after Penny Mordaunt's momentum stalled in tonight's latest round of votes. Meanwhile, it's reported millions of public sector workers will be awarded below inflation pay deals tomorrow, causing unions to threaten another wave of strike. That includes workers in the NHS, schools, police, justice system and armed forces. More on the media buzz now with tonight's superstar panel, though. The Daily Express columnist Carol Malone, star reporter at the I newspaper Benjamin Butterworth and the political journalist John Sargent. I don't know about you, uh, but I was struck with a disturbing sense of deja vu today. Silent streets, empty train garages, deserted shops. It actually, in London at least, uh, where I am, 
felt like being in the dark days of lockdown all over a bit of sun. Yep, the UK ground to a halt over alarmist warnings about the heat wave from the likes of... I hate to even mention his name. Chris Whitty, rebranding himself now as a weather hysteric after spending the best part of two years terrifying us about COVID. And the MSM, who went into overdrive, warning of thousands of excess deaths over the next two days, were at it as well. Look at this. Normal, everyday life has had its challenges today. In central London, some still braved an open-top bus tour. The heat is dangerous. A level four heat health emergency has been declared, meaning that even those who are fit and healthy are in danger. Schools closed, runways melting, rail lines buckling as Britain bakes in the heat waves. And it's, it really just isn't worth the risk of taking them outside. Yeah, real concerns. Got my uh, trusty thermometer here. 32 degrees it's telling me at the moment. It feels really hot. I genuinely didn't think in my forecasting career in the next 20, 20 years, even then I'll be predicting these temperatures. So when people are saying, this is just summer, we should get out and enjoy it, this is not the kind of weather to get out and enjoy. Let's panic then. <laughs> it's worth noting that today's hottest temperature of 38.1 degrees recorded in the village of Santon Downham in Suffolk is lower than the record high of 38.7 degrees logged in 2019. But of course that was before the pandemic, so nobody panicked. Temperatures are tipped to reach 41 degrees tomorrow, but even so, what the situation calls for, I think, is a bit of Churchill-like swashbuckling motivation from our Conservative political leaders. Instead, we had Cabinet Minister Kit Malthouse suggesting this week might be time to stay at home. The apparent answer to every crisis from now on. Transport providers are messaging people that they should only travel if they really need to on Monday and Tuesday, um, but also that services are going to be significantly affected. People just need to be on their guard for disruptions to their normal travel patterns. And if they don't have to travel, then this may be a moment to work from home. We're obviously on standby for the long-term forecast, which is showing the possibility of quite a warm summer. Um, and in there, there's obviously always the possibility that this kind of short episode uh, may repeat itself. So, you know, just a couple of days this week, but we're always on the lookout for more in the in the months to come. His comments came as unions called for a legal maximum workplace temperature of 25 degrees following a motion tabled by Labour last week. I wouldn't be presenting the show, by the way, if that was the uh, legal <laughs> maximum temperature because it's hot in here. As I wrote to my column for Mail Online earlier, all this heat wave has convinced me of is that British authorities are currently devoid of the concept of personal responsibility and empowerment, something that has to return and fast. If people are continually told to stay at home at the slightest hint of a challenge, even if that challenge is a 40 degree day, then our work ethic and ability to run the country efficiently will be stamped out for a generation. I'm sorry, Carol, I just feel like we've lost the stiff upper lip altogether. We're now telling young and healthy people to stay at home. Why? All these people who just had on there, they, they make this country sound absolutely pathetic. It makes me so angry. You know, there is no justification for treating this like it's a national calamity, because it's not. You know, there is no emergency here. It's a bit hot. People all year round are travelling to countries that have these temperatures mm. routinely. No I felt like I was in Thailand today. It was very lovely walking I mean, down, by the way, a completely empty Thames. No one's passing out in Dubai. 40 degrees. But, but you know, what is really getting on my nerves is there are lots of government departments trying to justify their existence by issuing this deluge of safety warnings. Mm. What's the agency called? It's called the Health Security Agency. That issued one today that said, drink lots of water, 
but no alcohol. It also said oh. walk in the shade and apply sunscreen. Like we don't know that already. I Seriously. I, I, I feel like I'm being treated like a five-year-old, Benjamin. When does this nanny statism end? I mean, look, the oddity about about you, and there He's are many... He's going to support this. But, oh, God. But, no, God, because, you're going to You sat this. through the whole COVID pandemic saying, actually... Well, not the whole, because at the start you were fine with it, but you said, you said actually, really, we don't mate. want the government to dictate what you do. We want them to give advice and for people to make up their own minds. Well, here they are, giving advice for people to make their Stupid. own decisions. I also said, and stop terrifying the population. And I'm sick of us being terrified. You know, these officials are coming out and saying, thousands of people will die... Thousands of people die every week, Benjamin. It yeah, is a tragedy. It happens every week. Thousands of people will not die because we it's know, 40 degrees. Well, they will, actually, Can and we no. know that because it happens. I'm going to have my point. No, but no, you, oh, can't, you can't give out an incorrect point. It's simply not true. It's between 2000 and 2019. Here's a stat for you. Do your research. I'll give you the, some back, the, trust the, me. The average people who die a year in this country with heat is 800. The average people... The real danger is the cold in the winter. Yeah. The amount, the so thousands will not die. What thousands will not die. What we know is that when you're talking about this as though it's a normal situation, as though we should just cope with it, in your, your monologue opening, you said, oh, what about 1976? Yeah. And I've heard this from, from a lot of... of 16 days lot, of over 30 a, degrees a lot of in 76. Have, have made this argument. Well, in 1976, the highest temperature during those... I think it was 15 days, but the highest temperature was 35 degrees. Should it not scare us and alarm us that in 45 years, the highest temperature this country has ever seen has risen by six degrees on what's forecast tomorrow? Are you terrified about this? I'm terrified by this sort of crazy use of mathematics to <laughs> prove any damn silly point. No, it's not. You can't just compare one thing like that and then say it's gone up three degrees. For goodness' sake, so six say. degrees For or two six days. degrees. But I mean, really, seventy-six. I lived through. I knew it perfectly well. Were you living? In 76? No. I, I think my dad was barely born. Uh, exactly, there we are. <laughs> so I, I, I think shy away from 76. It was different. It went on a very long time. It affected the farmers. It affected lots of industries that were really worried about all this. So it, you can't compare it with the 36 hours, what we've got. I agree amazingly with a lot of what Dan has said. Yay. No, I mean... Uh, the Doesn't idea happen that, often. I love it. And the idea that you say, oh, stay at home as a, def as a default position... Yeah. Whenever you hit anything, so keep calm and carry on. No, keep calm and stay at home. Yes, Chris. But, but, it, 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 but you know, it's, folk, it's, it's, it's the work shy generation like Benjamin, right? Well, I mean, who absolutely love locking themselves up in their homes uh, whenever they had to actually get to the office to do work. When it comes to their personal life, been well, out to nightclubs, right like they're more than happy to ignore the advice. And, Benjamin, yeah. what do you think about the vulnerable folk, actually, who will be put most at risk if lazy individuals like you choose to stay at home? Who's going to run the supermarkets? Who's going to do the delivery drivers yeah. for them? Who's going to open the chemists up? This is not well, thought through. But hang, also, hang, all right, just... hang on. Let me answer the. Let me answer the accusation. You, you know, first of all, you talked about the trades unions wanting a cap on the legal uh, temperature in yeah. workplaces. We would be off well, air. Tell me, we think, would be I, off air I if think, that was I think introduced. The Labour proposal was 30 degrees. Now, Germany has a maximum of 26 degrees. Spain has a maximum of 27 degrees. Many US states have maximums lower than that. So, tell me, would you really want to be working here if it was 30 degrees? I am. It is 30 I actually it is. am. It is. There is no air conditioning no in this no damn studio. Way. 
no. It is and not air conditioned. I am sweltering. Fan. I've got a fan on know, me. So honestly, no, there's no right. legal minimum operating at GB News. Airport has closed because the tarmac was melting. No, I know. Benjamin, can we have a little bit of sense in this? Which is obviously conditions vary so much according to who you're working with, when, where, and how, and all those. How long it lasts. I went to a supermarket this morning. Said to the lady on the woman on the on the cash. And I said, you've got it made, haven't you, today? And she said, yes, wonderful, isn't it? Thank goodness, wait for it, I'm not at home. Yes. Because, of course, if you I would love an air-conditioned workplace, actually, so that I could feel that way. Because if you're saying there should be a maximum temperature at work, then that has no effect on someone in an air-conditioned supermarket. What it says is that everybody should be working somewhere that isn't an impractical... What about builders? Look, you want this country to grind to a halt. You love it, you embrace it, you want chaos and carnage at... Any well, sort of event. You were talking about that, chaos OK, college. good, Look, good, 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 good. I know what this is know, about now. You want a summer of discontent. You and your ilk, you want permanent <laughs> strikes. Now, well, this is what it's about. Yes. This is what this is about, isn't it? You're to destroy it? the country, <laughs> Benjamin. And, and, you, and you want people to drop dead because it's so hot when they could uh, work in better conditions. Do you conditions. know what? I want an end to, to that well. despicable sort of scaremongering because you know what? I had it up to hair over COVID and I called it out and I would call it out again when it comes to this sort of eco-extremist well, extremism and coming from zealots like you. Because thousands of people will what. not die because it's got to 40 degrees. I tell you what, it's hotter than the Sahara here, so I'll wait to see you hosting this show from the but Sahara also, next if you, week. If, you if you're that on... passionate about working such hot temperatures, believe me, I the it's like the Sahara right. Desert in this okay. damn but studio, Benji, and I turned up, okay? I turned up. If you cry, so if you, Benjamin, if you cry wolf too often, yes. you start distrusting. The yep. newspapers, the Only, media, and everything—that's what they've got to be careful. We can't well, control. Well, all I do just—I do just trust them disaster. all now. I'm speaking to people I just of. <laughs> whom I distrust. Prince Harry, back at it again today. Uh, earlier, the Duke of Woke gave a keynote address to the UN in celebration of Nelson Mandela Day. What was supposed to be a reflection on the legacy of the former South African leader and humanitarian icon turned rather into a woke lecture by the Prince and even saw him wade into American politics with a dig seemingly aimed at the US Supreme Court over Roe v Wade and his enemies in the media for, quote, weaponizing lies and disinformation at the expense of the many. Oh, he's at it again, look. How many of us feel battered, helpless, in the face of the seemingly endless stream of disasters and devastation? I understand. This has been a painful year in a painful decade. We're living through a pandemic that continues to ravage communities in every corner of the globe. Climate change wreaking havoc on our planet, with the most vulnerable suffering most of all. The few weaponizing lies and disinformation at the expense of the many. And from the horrific war in Ukraine to the rolling back of constitutional rights here in the United States, we are witnessing a global assault on democracy and freedom, the cause of Mandela's life. He also pushed his extreme eco-agenda despite being a major user of private jets. As we sit here today, our world is on fire, again. And these historic weather events are no longer historic. More and more, they are part of our daily lives. And this crisis will only grow worse, unless our leaders lead. 
unless the countries represented by the seats in this hallowed hall make the decisions, the daring, transformative decisions that our world needs to save humanity. These decisions may not fit with the agendas of every political party. They may invite resistance from powerful interests. But the right thing to do is not up for debate. And neither is the science. Now, Harry's latest jibe at American politicians came after Meghan told Vogue that her so-called feminist husband had a guttural reaction to the overturning of the abortion laws last month. And with Meghan having reportedly set her sights on a White House move in the next few years, expect the unnecessary political meddling to increase. How unlucky for us. Carol Malone, Benjamin Butterworth, John Sargent, do stand by because coming up, will the man exposing the secrets of the aforementioned Duke of Oak be crowned today's greatest Briton? My panel reveal their nominations and I'll choose my winner soon. But first, is the fear of being called racist the biggest barrier to justice for grooming gang victims? Spiked online editor Tom Slater is uncancelled next. First, though, quick look at what's coming up tomorrow. Coming up on Dan Wooten tonight, as the Tory leadership candidates are whittled down to the final three, would you choose any of the would-be occupants of number 10 over Boris? I'll get your verdict and grill my lineup of political superstars. Plus, there's opinion galore from Nigel Farage and Darren Grimes. And I'll break down the latest headlines with my superstar panel. Former Daily Star editor and current columnist Dawn Neeson, commentator Reverend Calvin Robinson, and author and journalist Rebecca Reed. That's Dan Wooten tonight, Monday to Thursday from 9pm to 11pm on GB News. But it's time now for Uncancelled. <clears throat> and this is where Britain's top commentators speak out on controversial issues without the fear of the cancel culture sweeping the rest of the media. And if there's one damning example of how political correctness is a stain on this nation's soul, it's the outrageous and tragic grooming scandals that have ravaged northern communities. The most recent and unfathomable rev uh, revelations came from the Telford Child Sex Inquiry report last week, which concluded more than 1,000 young girls were targeted in campaigns of rape and sexual abuse at the hands of mostly British Pakistani men spanning decades. It's a familiar story seen across the country. Rotherham, Rochdale... Aylesbury, Oxford, Derby, Halifax, the list goes on. But sadly, it wasn't just the vile and sustained abuse of young working-class white girls ignored by the authorities meant to protect them that has caused so much outrage and hurt. Writing in a column drawing attention to the, quote, moral depravity of treating cases like this with kid gloves, spiked online editor Tom Slater states, there has been a conspiracy of silence when it comes to Pakistani Muslim grooming gangs. This tragedy has played out time and time again. Cowardly authorities prizing political correctness over protecting the most vulnerable have ignored the evil on their doorstep for fear of being accused of racism or fueling tension. While the Tory leadership contest and the heatwave means the story has been often overlooked by the MSM, I'm ensuring it won't be here, and I'm delighted to say that Tom Slater joins me now. Tom, has this scandal proved that political correctness is the biggest barrier to justice for grooming gang victims? It definitely has. I mean, we've seen this story play out time and time again. First, you have the kind of industrial-scale barbarism of these grooming gangs. As you were saying, a thousand girls believed to have been abused, raped, gang raped, trafficked in this one West Midlands town since the 1980s up until today. But then as we saw in Rotherham, as we saw in towns across England and across Britain, there was also these 
condemnations of the authorities and the police and local council for effectively turning a blind eye to the rape of children for fear of being called racist. There's various points in this report that points that out. As way back as the 1990s, teachers concerned about raising this issue when they saw examples of it. Even higher ups in the council in the mid 2000s saying that they were concerned that they could spark a race riot if this was properly investigated. And what we essentially see here is again, trying to avoid slings and arrows, avoid accusations of racism. And as a result of that, abandoning the most vulnerable people in society imaginable to the most unimaginable abuse. So I think it's definitely confirmed that political correctness is, is really at the heart of this horror and how it was allowed to go on for so long. Absolutely. And, and this is why we need to stamp out the woke agenda. I think this is why when we see in the Tory leadership contest, people try to dismiss woke as, as being something unsubstantial. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's at the heart of uh, why a scandal like this was covered up for so long. I think that's exactly right. I mean, this is uh, essentially a kind of uh, something that... Uh, kick-started off before we had the word woke, you know, political correctness is the phrase that come on, but it's essentially in the same lineage. It's the idea that you have to silence certain uncomfortable truths because that's better, because in some way that's kind of morally superior than dealing with what might be a very grim situation. And again, I think it survives off of a really low view of everyone involved. Um, it, this, this idea that you cannot, for instance, tackle a particular issue in a particular community that many um, Muslim community leaders have actually raised and talked about that you will instantly turn those people away from the authorities, that you will spark some kind of race riot. And on the flip side, there's this concern that if you talk about this issue openly, you're going to fuel the far right. For a very long mm. time, the far right were the only people talking about this. And it was the flip side that turned out to be true. The, the more there was silence on this particular issue, the more only the extremists mm. were going to talk about it. And so I think any kind of claim that political correctness is the worthy response to difficult issues in society has been exploded by this case and many others. The media haven't liked covering it, though, Tom. I mean, they've done the bare minimum, haven't they? Especially the broadcast MSM. Well, that's what's so strange about it, because we have heard about these stories. They have been reported. You know, national newspapers have sparked some of these investigations. I mean, the Telford report yes. actually began uh, in 2018 because the Sunday Mirror. They're the yeah. ones who first... Huge credit to the Sunday report. Mirror for this story. Definitely. Because it was and derided at the time. At the time. Yeah. The but yeah, what's, what's strange is that it never really properly kind of impacts on the narrative, does it? We never have a proper conversation mm. about it. Heads never roll in the same way that they do with often much more minor scandals that we might find ourselves talking about. And that's the disparity we can't get over. We know about these cases now, even though it took a long time for them to come to the surface, and yet nothing ever happens because we're still somehow too delicate almost, it feels like, to talk yeah. about these difficult subjects. You are so right. Tom Slater, thank you for drawing attention to it and for being uncancelled with us tonight. That's the editor of Spiked Online. Time now to reveal today's greatest Britain and union jackass. My superstar panel return. Carol Malone, who's your greatest Britain tonight? OK, we've just been talking about... Not him, Harry, but my greatest Britain is Tom Bauer, who was writing an explosive Ooh, new book yes. about Harry and Meghan. He tells a story that's been in the papers today about how when... Um, Harry invited 16 of his closest heat friends to a party at Sandringham. She, Meghan took all of them on about, over their views about everything, bollocked them all. Anyway, uh, and afterwards, they all texted each other and said, be careful, I don't swear. They said, oh, my God, what about her? Harry must be effing nuts. Well, <laughs> he kind of was, wasn't he? But anyway... And all of those friends he's no longer friends well, with. Because she doesn't want them She's to be. cleared she them all out. Like them.
Benjamin Butterworth, your greatest Britain nominee. Mine is a man called Alan Watkinson, who was Mo Farah's school teacher. And if you saw the documentary last week, he revealed that he was brought into this country as a child slave. And that man was the person that little Mo, as a kid, trusted to tell for the first time. He rescued a young Mo Farah from the slave family and then he helped him to pursue his athletics career. Not only that, but he kept Mo's secret a secret for 30 years until he decided to share it last week. And that teacher, I was just gobsmacked by what a decent person he was. Truly the definition and of Greatest Britain. John Sargent, your GB. Right, Greatest Britain, after a tremendous amount of pressure and great difficulty, <laughs> Rishi Sunak has not agreed to promise crazy tax cuts, which he knows can't be justified at the moment. Okay. That against all the opposition. Well, I'm going for Tom Bauer, the author of Revenge. He's going to be here dropping the truth bombs about Meghan later in the week, which I can't wait for. Union Jackass time. Carol Malone, quickly, right. your nominee. This is the idiot bosses at Manchester University who have banned students from using the words mum and dad and brother and sister. Husband and wife are also being banned because they say they are triggering and they're, they're not inclusive. Benjamin Busworth, your Union Jackass. Thanks. The buffoon Jeremy Clarkson. He tweeted, it's hot in the south of France, but there's no heatwave death warning here. He tweeted it as 14,000 people were evacuated over dangerous bushfires. And John Sargent, your nominee for Union Jackass. Penny Morden for not clearing up her views on transgender women. She should do it. OK, well, it's going to be the double for Carol Malone tonight. How ridiculous of Manchester University, Carol, trying to ban this language. I just I mean, do not just understand it. They're not inclusive, these words. We're letting these idiots yeah. brainwash our totally. young people. It's crazy. That is what they're doing. Carol Malone, Benjamin Butterworth, John Sargent. They were a super hot superstar panel on a super hot evening. Record-breaking temperatures tomorrow night, but we will still be here. 9 p.m. See you then. Headliners next. Hello, it's Aidan McKibben here from the Met Office. It's been a very hot start to the week and it's going to get even hotter. Tuesday marks the peak of this extremely hot spell. Red warning enforced because these temperatures are unprecedented, record-breaking for the UK and we're simply not adapted to this kind of heat, both by day and by night. The hot air extending across the whole of the country, which means that overnight temperatures won't dip very far at all. Even though there'll be clear spells for many, there'll be a few showers for the northwest of Scotland, some patchy cloud elsewhere, but otherwise clear skies and temperatures in some spots holding up in the mid-20s, and if that happens, it'll be the warmest night on record. So we start off Tuesday already with temperatures in the 20s and quite quickly with widespread sunny skies, those temperatures will shoot up. I think in some places by 10am we'll already be in the mid-30s of Celsius and it's only going to get hotter. The heat intensifying across southeast Scotland into northeast England, central and eastern England with temperatures widely here, 38 to 40, perhaps 41 Celsius. Exceptionally high, unheard of temperatures. It is going to be cooler towards the southwest compared with Monday and Northern Ireland also seeing lower temperatures. The air is starting to cool down. We're going to see that big change on Tuesday night as a, an area of showers moves through and then those showers clearing the east for the start of Wednesday. Clear spells overnight, some wet weather pushing into western areas by the end of the night but a more comfortable night for sleeping, although it won't be especially fresh. We're still looking at lows widely of 18 or 19 Celsius. 
A fine start for many on Wednesday, certainly a cooler start compared to recent mornings. Some showers around in the west first thing, those will push east. And actually, it is another hot day in the east of England. Lincolnshire, East Anglia, 30 Celsius still possible. That could spark a few showers or thunderstorms by the afternoon. More typical weather for the UK on Thursday and Friday. Bright spells, showers, mid-20s at the highest. Dan Wooden here again. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of my podcast, Uncancelled. Did you like what you hear? Well, remember to subscribe, rate and review and join me for more newsmaking interviews, fiery debate and free speech on Dan Wooden tonight every Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News.